Have you guys ever done those uh, draw by number things? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? If you can count to 100, you just got to connect the dots, right? One, two, three, you go through and connect the dots. Uh, when I was a junior high student, uh, my teachers and my parents were wondering uh, why I had such a difficult time paying attention in school. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, they took me off of red food coloring and sugar. And I, I went to uh, this uh, counselor therapist uh, that they, they had this great idea that we would teach Matt how to pay attention for long periods of time by getting him to draw by numbers. Uh, and so I would have these, these books and I would go through, you know, the connect the dot books and, you know, I'd have to concentrate. And, and lo and behold, as you connected the dots, a picture started to unfold. Uh, and this kind of understanding is a little bit of, a, of how we could actually understand the scope of the picture that unfolds as we go through the book uh, or go through the Bible. Uh, because when we start at the beginning of Scripture, we don't necessarily see what the full picture is going to look like. And you start going through history, you start going uh, through, through time as God is working on this earth through people, through a nation, and we're just kind of following the dots and we're unclear to where the whole thing is going. And I think as we go through the scriptures, if we're paying attention to what is being drawn and the picture that God is building and the thing that God is doing, something comes to completion in the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus. Luke 24, which we started with last week, actually connects the dots. Luke 24 is, is kind of like Jesus getting to the last dot and then presenting it to us and his disciples and saying, do you see the picture now of what I've been drawing in the journey that I've been bringing you on all along? And Luke 24, post-resurrection, Jesus uh, died and was, was crucified, was resurrected, came back to life, and he's walking on this road to Emmaus with these other disciples, and the disciples don't yet recognize him, and they're talking about all the things that have happened, that they put their hope in this Messiah, this King, this Jesus. They thought he was going to be something that he wasn't. Uh, they thought he was finally going to deliver them and save the nation of Israel, and they thought he was a failure because he died this humiliating death on a cross, and so they're all mourning and grieving and reflecting on this. Meanwhile, Jesus is walking among them in their midst, and he's like, you missed the picture. You didn't catch it. Uh, and so he starts to connect the dots for them. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. God's been connecting these dots all through history, but you haven't seen it. You haven't believed it. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus goes in this journey, and I would love to be a fly on the wall uh, of this conversation of what did Jesus talk about when he was going from Jerusalem to Emmaus? What are the things that he unpacked, that he revealed about the scriptures, about what God had been doing in history? How did he help them connect the dots so that they saw what Jesus saw, so that they could see what God was doing throughout history? But Jesus shows them that this gospel, which can be translated as good news, this good news that was revealed ultimately, ultimately in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus had been in the works since the very beginning, that God was connecting these things. They weren't haphazard. 
It wasn't just by chance that God actually had a plan. And we started all the way last week in Genesis 1 to 3 and seeing, seeing that God actually had a plan from the very beginning of the story, very beginning of history of what he was going to do. And Jesus connects these dots and he helps them to see what God had been doing all along. And it said that they were just, their hearts were burning within them because they began to see and capture the glory and the majesty and the beauty of what God had been doing throughout history. I will come back to that, but let's pause and say you were trying to sell a 2007 Mazda 5, and instead of donating it to Worth Auto, which you probably should have done, um, you said, I'm not going to donate this thing. Uh, I'm going to try and sell this thing. And so you put it up on Facebook Marketplace, and, and you, you just... Uh, you write this beautiful description of this Mazda 5, and it's, it's, you know, it's something along the lines of, this is the ultimate family and dad vehicle. You know, it's like a minivan, except it's cooler than a minivan. It's like a mini minivan. It's like a sports car, but it has sliding doors. It's like the best of both worlds. And so you, you describe it, you post the pictures of it, and you, you put it out there, and sure enough, you know, you got a guy, and his name is Bill, and he phones you, and he's like, hey, I'm really interested in that Mazda 5, um, you know, it just really strikes me as the perfect vehicle. You know, I can get my whole family in there. It has sliding doors, uh, but it's not quite a minivan. So I feel like I can still be fully dad. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. So you're trying to sell it. Bill's like, he's interested. And so you give him the address. He shows up to check out your Mazda five. And uh, obviously he wants to take it for a drive. And that's just part of the process of discerning whether you should buy a vehicle. And so you give Bill the keys to your Mazda five and you say, yeah, take it for a spin. And so he takes it out for a spin and, uh, and you're waiting there and 10 minutes go by and you're like, man, he's really, you know, testing that, you know, 30 minutes go by and he's like, oh, he's being thorough. Like he's going down to Okotoks and back and uh, maybe he's testing the gas mileage. And, you know, if the 45 minute mark hits and you're like, Something feels a little off here, and you realize that Bill just took your keys and stole your car. So what do you do? Well, you actually get on the phone, and you phone the police. Well, why, why do you phone the police? Well, you phone the police because that's what you do when somebody steals your car, right? We assume that that's how it works. And this is a big assumption, and there's so much involved in this cultural assumption uh, that we actually need to pause and think about. Think about how normal, natural, and perfectly reasonable it is that somebody stole your car, that there would be a phone that you could pick up, that there would be somebody on the other line of the phone. You would tell them that this car was stolen. They would run your plates. All of a sudden, they would have an infrastructure and a system to actually put out there and find out who stole your car and where it is. And so you do that. And you find out very shortly that they found your car in Okotoks at a 7-Eleven. And so the police descend on this car. And they find out, Bill's walking out of the 7-Eleven. He's got a Slurpee in his hand. And he doesn't even seem to care. And they said, what are you doing driving this car? And he says to the police officers, well, I'm driving this car because I answered this ad on Facebook. And when I went to get the car, the guy who was selling me the car just gave me the keys to the car. And the officer said to him, but did you pay him money for the car? He said, oh, I didn't understand that part of the deal. I just showed up and he gave me the keys to the car. Well, you know, in order for this transaction to take place and for you to have the car, you need to pay the amount of money to have the car in order for you to keep the car and drive the car. 
And he's like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. It's like, I, and, and in this fictitious story, you're thinking, this is such a dumb story. Uh, and it is. It is. But we have a understanding, and this seems weird to us. It seems incomprehensible that, that someone would do that innocently, not understanding what was happening, uh, because we have a built-in, ingrained understanding of how justice transactions and contracts work. We do this all the time. If you're going to buy a house, there's a set price, and then you, you actually sign papers, and uh, you commit to certain things. If you can't fulfill those commitments, there's a penalty that's going to be paid if you can't fulfill that. You do that when you buy a vehicle. You do that when you go to 7-Eleven and you buy a bag of Doritos. There's an understanding of that transaction. You know, I'm going to give you $2. You're going to give me the bag of Doritos, and I'm going to consume this, and that's the transaction that happens. In this scenario, you know, Bill didn't understand that, you know, for, uh, for the amount of money being asked on Facebook, he was going to get this luxurious, practical mini minivan, uh, but he didn't understand his side of the contract. But this is the way it works. Two parties agree to a deal, and there's certain consequences if the other party goes around that deal. So here's the question. So 4,000 years ago, in the course of human history... Who did you call when somebody didn't uphold their end of the deal? Who did you call? And, the, and so you just kind of start thinking about that. And that ultimately leads to another question because of these complicated systems of e-transfers and cash and enforcement and contracts that we have nowadays. If you go back 4,000 years, how did you ever get to the point that you would trust another human being to do what they said they were going to do? And how did you hold them accountable to that thing? Well, the answer to the question, in one word, in an oversimplification, is the word covenant. Everybody say covenant. And so this is how it would work. 4,000 years ago, if you were going to enter into a contract, you would come to agreement of what the of what was happening, what you were going to give, what they were giving. And you would get some animals. You would get a ram, a cow, goat, dove. And you would actually get those animals, and you would cut those animals in half. Um, and you'd lay out this, this uh, aisle with half of the animal on one side and the other half on the other side. And then you would come to the end of this aisle with another individual that you were going to enter into this contract, this covenant with, and you would walk down the middle of that aisle of those animals with that other person, and you would covenant together and say something along the lines of, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't fulfill my end of this agreement. That was the practice 4,000 years ago. Why all of this? Well, because there had to be some accountable way, commitment way for two parties to come together to some kind of agreement and an agreement among those consequences. And so this activity, this this covenant-making activity was part of the culture 4,000 years ago. And this became a way of enforcing justice into a time and an era before any of the systems that we live in and take for granted now actually existed. May I become like one of these animals if I don't fulfill my 
end of the deal. And by the way, this is where the term to cut a deal comes from. We're going to cut a deal together. This is the commitment. This is what I'm agreeing to. This is what you're agreeing to. These are the consequences if we don't fulfill our end of the deal. So all this brings us 4,000 years earlier to the story of Abraham. And Abraham's a large story. There's lots of different pieces to the story of Abraham. We're going to zero in on one particular story found in Genesis 15. But before we get to Genesis 15, to understand what's going on in the life of Abraham, you need to understand this, the promises that God had made to Abraham, the thing that God wanted to do in Abraham and through Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, it kind of outlines this. And the Lord said to Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So God says, Abraham, I choose you. I will make you. I will bless you. This is God's initiative. This is God's choosing. This is God's power. This is the thing that God is going to do. God's choice of Abram or Abraham was this initially exclusive move for the sake eventually of a maximally inclusive end. God makes this exclusive commitment, but the whole point of it was that it was going to be this inclusive end, that God was going to do something for Abraham so that he could do something through Abraham. Abraham was chosen for a purpose, and that purpose would eventually, at some point, according to God's promise and plan, be a blessing that would bless the whole world. But it starts with Abraham, and it starts with Abraham leaving his country. It starts with Abraham starting a family. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up to the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous. And this is a phenomenal part of the story because at this point, Abram is 75 years old. He's 75 years old, and God makes a promise to him that he's going to have a child. Now, how many of you are 75 in this room or older? Uh, I know some of you are reluctant to put up your hand. Yeah, what would happen if God said to you, you're going to have a child right now? <laughs> you're like, oh my goodness, uh, not at this stage of my life. This is, this is where Ab- Abraham is at 75 years old, and God tells him, you're about to have a child. And get a hold of this, it, he didn't have a child until another 25 years later. He was 100 years old when he had a child. So you can imagine the type of wrestling and doubt and all that stuff that Abraham would have had to go through. Uh, but one of the, the marks of Abraham was that he was a person of faith. And we, we read that throughout the scripture, that he was always upholded as a person who believed God, who had faith. And so even though he was 75, even though it took 25 years, he still hung out some level of hope that God was going to fulfill his end of the agreement. And it continues, then the Lord told them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abraham replied, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? So God, you want to do this great thing. You want to use me. You want to do this whole global thing through me. I'm 75. I don't know what this blessing is that you're talking about. I don't see it. I don't have kids I don't know what this nation is that you're going to talk about that's going to be more uh, than the stars in the sky. I don't know the plan that you have. Uh, How can I be sure? 
How can I be sure that what you are saying, I can actually trust? How can I be sure that you're going to uphold your end of the deal? And so 4,000 years ago, what did you do when somebody promised you something and you wanted to make sure that they were going to uphold their end of the deal? Well, they did what people did 4,000 years ago. And what does God say? God says, go get some animals. So the Lord told them, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a partridge, and a pear tree. And so Abraham presented all these things to God, and he killed these animals. And you know what happens next, don't you? He cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat away the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. And that last line, I mean, I just, this is before social media, but can you imagine that Instagram reel of a 75-year-old guy chasing around vultures uh, with these dead carcasses all over the, I mean, that would have been awesome. But so Abraham, he cuts these carcasses, lays them side by side, and Abraham knows what to do at this point. And God, God doesn't even tell him what to do with the animals. He just actually knows because this is the way that contracts, covenants, promises were kept and agreed upon 4,000 years ago. So after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham was smoking, saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. And that's the end of the story. And you're like, that's it. That's it. That's the end of the story. And so as the sun's going down, as things are getting dark, Abram looks out and he sees that there's this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch that is going through the middle of the animals. And this fire pot and this flaming torch is really unanimously agreed upon by scholars that this is actually representing the spirit and the presence of God in front of Abraham. But what you'll notice is that what God is doing is he's actually throwing aside the expectations that people had 4,000 years ago about how a covenant and a promise and a contract was supposed to work. God passes through the animals alone. And you think, but weren't they supposed, both supposed to pass through the animals? And the answer is yes, yeah. And so what's the point of this? The point of this is that God actually commits to a covenant with Abraham. And God commits that he will uphold both ends of the deal, even if Abraham fails. Now, the good news, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed the good news that's represented through his death and resurrection often gets summarized and oversimplified, I would say, as the good news of forgiveness, that God forgives you, that God forgives me. And that is true. It's true, but it's not the full picture that connects all the dots. What is also true is that God is a God of justice. He's not just a God of forgiveness. In fact, if we just talk about God as God and his forgiveness and his compassion, I think we actually minimize 
the good news. We actually minimize the love of God. We minimize the forgiveness of God because God doesn't give up his justice, his holiness to be forgiving. In fact, for God to do that, for God to do something where he ignores his holiness, ignores his justice, would ultimately be to ignore who God is. And God cannot ignore who he is. God is just, God is holy, and God is also loving. God doesn't forgive just by looking away. God cannot be anything other than what he is. And so you have this scenario where God is wholly just and God is wholly loving. And how do those two realities actually play themselves out on the course of history? And we often like the idea that God is forgiving. And we kind of push away at the idea that God is also a God of justice who cares about injustice. And that type of posture is actually probably more of a reflection on a middle upper class Western culture, uh, because it just shows many of us how maybe out of touch we are with the amount of injustice and suffering that happens in the world for many, 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 many people. The majority of people in the world to believe in a God that is unjust would be hard to believe that that God is also loving. Because justice, to be fully just and fully loving, they actually need each other. And so this brings us to an incredible historical and human predicament if we believe what the Bible tells us about humans. And the Bible tells us, In no uncertain terms, from the very beginning, Genesis 3, like we read last week, all the way through the end of the scriptures, and we read it uh, probably most pointedly in Romans 3, where Paul says that all have sinned, that all have broken shalom, that no matter who you are, that you have committed injustice towards a just and holy God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think I said that right, uh, who was part of the labor camps in the Soviet, wrote this. And for him, it would have been easier to say there's good guys and there's bad guys. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But he says this, and you may have heard this line, famous line, but the lion dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And it's amazing that he could go through what he went through in those labor camps and actually see himself in those perpetrators who were victimizing himself and others. He came to an understanding that we are actually all human and have a mix of good and evil in all of us and how easily we can forget that. The line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And if this is true, and I would argue that this has been uh, outside of even scripture, that this, you could see this in history. If you're willing to look at your life soberly enough, you'll see this in your own life. And the Bible t- speaks of this from the beginning to the end of it that you and I are not fully bad and we're not fully good, that the line of good and evil actually runs right through us. And now we have a God who is fully good, fully holy, fully just, 
fully loving, but he has a plan for you and me, and he had a plan for Abraham. And so how does this all work? If it's true that good and evil run through the heart of every man, and it's, if it's true that this has been observed in history and this is testified in the Bible, and if God is fully love and God is fully just, what is the way forward in general, but what is the way forward for you? If God is just, he can't simply just forgive and turn away, because I would argue that that's actually not fully loving. Not only is that not fully just, it's actually not fully loving. I think we've stumbled on a revolutionary, unique, profound idea that is only seen in Christianity through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And this is where we start to tap into what is the good news, the gospel actually mean. And we see all the way in Genesis chapter 15, if we can connect the dots, that God was already showing us something about who he was and what he was going to plan on doing in the reality that we find ourselves in. God displays his justice and his love by taking the shame and consequences of a covenant upon himself. So Abraham witnesses God walk through the animals. The animals where Abraham was supposed to walk through with God. The, Abraham, the, the animals that, God was, that Abraham was supposed to walk through with God, and they were supposed to say together, if I am unfaithful to my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And then Abraham sees God go through it alone. And God says, if you are unfaithful, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Let that sink in for a second. Abraham, if you are unfaithful, I'm walking through these alone. You're watching. If you are unfaithful, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And it did. And God knew that Abraham would be unfaithful. God knew that we would be unfaithful. And we see Jesus years later as as God's connecting the dots and this beautiful picture of the gospel is coming to life. Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, before he was going to be crucified on a cross, gathers his collective disciples together, and he speaks these words to him. He says, while they're eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his Bibles, to his disciples, saying, take it, take this bread. This is my body. So he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my broken body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, Jesus is God with flesh on. He's part of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When we look at Jesus on the cross, who do we see? We don't see some human being paying the price of a covenant that they couldn't keep. We see the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, who comes in the form of, a f- of flesh, who comes in the incarnation, the person of Jesus. We see a God who says, may what happened to these animals happen to me if you fail to keep your end of the covenant. 
We see in Jesus that God is a God of justice and holiness, that he is going to make all things right, and he is committed to that end. He will not give up that part of who he is, and we can move forward with confidence and faith that God is a God of justice that is making all things right. And yet, if we are sober enough to look in the mirror, we'll realize that that has an implication for me. And God says, that's okay. I'm going to uphold your end. I'm going to be the covenant partner that walks through this by myself for your sake. When we gather around the communion table as a church. This is the image that Jesus gave on that last night before he was betrayed. It is the image that God gave to his covenant people. It is the reminder that we have when we come to receive that God is just and God is holy and God is loving and there's enough room at the table for you and me no matter your story because God has done everything that we could not do to bring us into relationship with him. And so the communion table is an open table. No matter your story, no matter where you're coming from, if you are in a place where you want to receive forgiveness, where you want to walk in relationship with the living God, he knows that you can uphold your end of the relationship. He's done what we cannot do so that he can walk in relationship with us. And there's a few reasons why people maybe wouldn't take communion and walk into relationship with Jesus. The first one is you might not believe this. I don't believe any of the stuff and that's fine. There is no pressure whatsoever to ever come to the communion table, to ever bend your knee to Jesus. He gives us the freedom and the choice to choose to walk in relationship with him. And as a, as Sun West, we will never ever uh, force you or put any pressure on you to make the decision. We just invite you on the journey and perhaps there's a time down the road in your life where you might want to make that commitment. It does not have to be today. Um, but for those for if you're not in a place where you don't b- believe this, uh, there's two other reasons why people don't receive. One is people think, I'm too good. I actually don't need forgiveness. Then you haven't quite come to grips with the part of the gospel that says good and evil run, runs through the heart of every human being. And there's some people that think, I'm too bad. And then I would also say you haven't come to the heart of the gospel that says you can't be bad enough to disqualify yourself from the grace and the covenant that Jesus wants to give you. Because Jesus paid the penalty for you through his death and resurrection. When you say, I'm too bad, you are actually saying, Jesus, what you did for me isn't enough. And God says what Jesus did for you is enough. And so no matter what your story No matter where you come from, we invite you to relationship with Jesus. And this is represented through the taking of bread and not wine, but juice. Uh, And so we have four corners. As the worship band plays, I want to invite you to the covenant God who has made a way for you to walk in relationship with him that is not dependent on your behavior, your morality, but on his goodness, on his holiness, and on his compassion most seen through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we invite you to come to a table. Uh, And so we got four tables uh, in each corner. And so during the next song, uh, we just invite you to go to one of those tables. As you go, the person serving you will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. We invite you during that worship time to take those elements on your own time during that song at any point. Again, there's no pressure to come, uh, but we do invite you if you would so choose. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for your goodness. From the very beginning of history, Lord, you showed that you were a God, a covenant God, a just holy God that is love, that you were willing to walk alone, that you were willing to walk to the cross alone, that your body was willing to be broken and split in half because you knew, Lord, that we could not uphold our end of this relational covenant. Lord, for those of us who think we are too proud, Lord, may we see, may we see our sin. Lord, may we be broken by the things that break your heart. Lord, may, me, may, me, may we realize that the line of good and evil runs right through our heart. But Lord, may we also see that you loved us too much to leave us in that place, that you made a way for us to walk fully in relationship with you. So Jesus, we're so thankful. We're so thankful. So thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So as you go to the communion tables, um, I would invite us to uh, go to the tables on the outside and come back to your seats on the inside. uh, If that works and makes sense, and we'll find out if it doesn't. So uh, the band uh, is going to lead us in the song. I invite you to stand and worship uh, together with us as we respond to what Jesus has done. of Christ that was broken for you and his blood that was spilled for you. For you. Um, God entered into this covenant knowing full well that we couldn't uphold uh, our end of the deal. Uh, and that's why Jesus, God through Christ, has reconciled the world to himself. That's you and me. Which also means the good news is that uh, you can't actually sin your way out of the kingdom of God, that God is in the business of holding his covenant and what he requires for us to walk into it is a step of repentance and humility. And if you have never uh, taken that step of repentance, invited Jesus to forgive your sins and to be the Lord of your life, uh, we have prayer teams available every week. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, If you had prayer requests uh, about anything else, we would also love to pray for you. So we invite you uh, to come forward for that. Uh, Lastly, If you're interested in a 2007 Mazda 5, I have one for sale. Um, Anyways, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again uh, for your word. We thank you again for what you've done. Um, And we thank you for the joy, our joy that it is to walk in covenant relationship with you. We're eternally grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Uh, We'll see you guys next week.